At North Point Community Church, we are passionate about helping our community move toward a life fully devoted to Jesus. And we hope this message helps you do that. Thank you for tuning in. Good morning and happy 4th of July. I want to start out today by asking you a question. By show of hands, how many of you have siblings? Yeah, quite a few of you. How many of you fight or have fought with your siblings? Yeah, so I grew up with a younger brother and we fought a lot. I don't, and uh, fighting with your siblings is actually normal, believe it or not. There's studies that show that siblings fight on average three and a half times in an hour. You see, you do the math on that, and that turns out to be about 17 minutes, and that's a lot of arguing. I had a younger brother, and we fought a lot, and we fought over the dumbest things. Maybe uh, some of you fought with your siblings over these same things, uh, the TV remote and the shows you were watching. Uh, We fought over whose spot was whose, like when someone got up to go to the bathroom or they went to go get a snack. And you know, there's that one chair that's comfier than the chair you're sitting in. So you go to that one. Or we just fought over the dumbest, like little things that would drive each other crazy. And there's one instance that I can remember where my brother and I got in a huge fight. So my brother was watching the show Adventure Time, and I wasn't a huge Adventure Time uh, show. I wasn't a fan of the show. And uh, so in our house, the rule was whoever was in the room first got to choose what was on the TV. So my brother got up, went to get a snack, go to the bathroom, whatever you do on commercial breaks, you know, back when there were commercials on TV, and Netflix wasn't a thing. But he got up and went to the bathroom or something, so I changed the show to my favorite show, The Fairly Odd Parents. And, and when he came back, he saw that the TV channel was changed, and he got angry. And that anger turned into yelling at each other. And so once he started yelling at me, I started yelling back at him. And that yelling became hitting. So, you know, when he hits, I hit back, and... I hit back a little harder because I'm the older brother. But, um, and then after hitting, it came to pushing and shoving. And I pushed my brother so hard, he fell off the bed and into a bookshelf. And in that moment, he starts crying out to my parents. For those of you that have ever been in this position where you have a sibling crying out to parents, it's not a good place to be. Because you know either you or both of you are going to get in trouble. And so I do what every responsible older brother would do. And I said, hey, you can hit me back. Just stop crying out to the parents. When we argue with people, we are so set on retaliation and revenge. We have to hit them back harder. We have to yell at them louder than they yelled at me. So we win in the end. We've been in this uh, series called Crazy Talk over the past several weeks, and we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount. It takes place in Matthew 5 through 7. And in this uh, sermon that Jesus is giving, he talks about a bunch of crazy things. You know, blessed are the poor, and all these crazy things that make you 
or lead you to live a righteous life that sound crazy. And Jesus knew that they sounded crazy, but he knew that ultimately it was gonna change the world. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking specifically at these statements where Jesus says something along the lines of, you've heard it said, but I say. And today we're gonna finish off with a section of these you've heard it said statements with two more. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead, open up to the book of Matthew chapter five. And in chapter five, verse 38, he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, so they've heard it somewhere. Where did they hear this said? Well, he's referencing the Torah. This is listed, this statement, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is listed three times in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And while I'm not gonna dive into each of those passages right now, Jesus is giving the context of what the judicial law looked like at the time. This idea, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, comes from a phrase in Latin known as lex teleones. And what that means is it's the law of limited retaliation. It's the idea of saying, hey, you wronged me, but I'm only gonna wrong you as much as you wronged me. It's not going above and beyond. And this law was to be upheld by civil authorities and civil courts. It wasn't necessarily meant to be for individual people and like households. It was a greater community thing, though it's a great starting place to start. And this law was set up for several reasons. The first one was it helped prevent crime. You see, if you know what the punishment is gonna be before you commit a crime, you're far less likely to commit that crime. It also brought justice to the person that was wronged. It brought justice to the victim. They knew that if someone wronged them, they were gonna get justice through the system that equaled to the pain or the suffering that they went through. And similarly, the third thing is that it protects the offending party. So if you ever hurt someone, they can't go above and hurt you more than what you did to them. It was to protect from harsher criminal punishments. And if you think about it, it's a really generous way to interact with each other. You know, you hurt me, but I'm only gonna hurt you back to the same level that you hurt me. It's very gracious. And it seems like a great system, right? Except there's one little thing is that people got so caught up in trying to use this law to justify their revenge that they started to lose focus on the idea of grace and the idea of forgiveness. They had to get back at the other person to ensure that things were fair and even. Think about it this way. Have any of you pulled a prank on somebody? No one's played... Man, we don't prank anyone in this culture. There's no one at first service pranked anyone too. Well, in college, my roommate and I played a ton of pranks on each other and we had a good time with it. And it all started when I went away for a weekend and we had a whiteboard outside our dorm room door and he wrote on that whiteboard, bed for rent. 
It's kind of a funny little prank, but um, you know, once someone pranks you, you gotta prank them back. So what I did is I wrote bed for rent when he went away for a weekend, put his phone number on there, said text this number if you're interested, and then got a bunch of guys from my floor to crawl into his bed under his covers, sent him a picture of a bunch of guys in his bed. Pranks went on, watched the movie It, you know, the creepy clown movie. First of all, clowns aren't funny. They're kind of freaky. He hit about 50 clowns anywhere you would look in our dorm room. In my pillowcase, in my books, behind the TV, in the fridge when you opened up the freezer, there were clowns everywhere. And to this day, I'm still convinced that I haven't found all these clowns. So I took his little plastic army men and I hit him around his uh, stuff in the room, hit him in his backpack, so he's pulling him out in the middle of class, and people are looking at him like, why do you have plastic army men in your backpack? Pranks went on, and ultimately, my bed ended up in the dorm room showers. I don't know how you top that, so that's kind of where our prank war died. And needless to say, my roommate was a much better prankster than I was. But while we were having these, this prank war, I often forgot to take the time to picture and imagine how great these pranks are, like reminisce on them. Oh, that was a good prank. I was so focused on trying to get back at my roommate. And while this is the case, this is the same way people were acting, reacting to punishment at this time. They were so focused on trying to get punishment that they lost sight of grace and forgiveness. Now, don't get me wrong. Revenge feels good. It's always nice when someone gets what they had coming. But what's crazy is to go the extra mile in order to get that revenge. But what's even crazier is what Jesus says in the verse following. Verse 39, Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the person who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All right, Jesus, what are you saying? Why would I let somebody slap me again after they slapped me once? Why, why would I go an extra mile if I don't need to? Why would I give someone suing me more than what they're already asking? Why would I give to somebody if I'm not necessarily comfortable with that? You see, Jesus here is referencing four everyday examples that a disciple under persecution might go through. And in doing so, Jesus is giving examples of how they can serve those that are persecuting them. So the first one, a slap across the face. It was a huge insult to be slapped across the face. It wasn't necessarily the pain of being slapped. It was just, I mean, like picture it. You're like a child getting slapped for what you did wrong. It was shameful to be slapped across the face. And by offering them to slap the other cheek, it resulted in a backhand. And that backhand would be far more shameful than the initial slap itself. Jesus is saying that the disciples should be so secure in who they are and who Jesus is that they don't need to retaliate with more evil. 
By giving up their coat, Jesus is drawing on the sense of the legal setting. See, a person's coat was so important, and it kept the sun off their skin during the day, but in Exodus 24, verse 13, it says, if you borrow a person's coat, make sure it's returned by sundown. Not only was it to protect the skin during the day, but at night, it was their source of warmth. It was their sense of comfort. And Jesus is saying, you should be willing to give up that sense of comfort for those that are persecuting you. And in return, you will never get it back. The third thing, by going the extra mile, Jesus is drawing on the sense of the military. The military at this time could call you or anyone around you aside and say, hey, you come help me. And what would often happen is they would move from town to town and they would call on people around them and say, hey, you come move this luggage for me. And a lot of people would be vengeful about this. They would be hateful about it. But Jesus is saying, do it out of love. Go the extra mile. Be willing to serve those when they ask. And the final thing, by giving to those who ask, Jesus isn't only referencing the idea of giving loan-free interest that's often seen throughout the Old Testament. But he's talking about giving out of a gracious spirit. Jesus calls people to give generously to all people whenever they ask. At this time, it would have been so much easier for the disciples to say, nah, Jesus, I'm not for that. It would be easier for them to turn and retaliate and slap that person back. It would be easier for them to turn away from what Jesus was calling them to do here. But Jesus was calling them to live in such a way that sets them apart from the rest of the world. That way they can have a much greater impact. So what does that mean for us? For us, if we were to get slapped across the face, it might look like someone insulting you. And instead of insulting them back, we decide not to retaliate. We decide not to talk bad about them behind their backs to other people. By uh, going the extra mile, it might look like when you're mowing your lawn, instead of just mowing your lawn, you have that neighbor who's not necessarily capable of mowing their lawn. So you go ahead and do it for them. When someone sues you, in this context, instead of, or it might look like buying someone a meal, giving them a most basic need that they would require. By giving out of a gracious spirit, it's not only just giving to whoever whenever we feel like it. It might be giving a little bit more to that stranger or to a friend or to the church or to an organization and trusting that God is gonna use that money, whatever, or that gift to multiply his kingdom, and to take care of you as well. You see, you can get even or you can have influence. You can get revenge or you can have massive impact on those around you, but you can't have both. And something changes when we live in a way that we don't seek out that revenge and self-interest. In Romans 12, Paul speaks to the Roman church about how to live lives that are exemplifying Christ. And in verse 17, he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful, do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it demands on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave 
room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay it, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't know who your enemies are in your life. But I can tell you that if we live in such a way that sets us apart, we can have massive impact on our lives and those around us as well. We don't need to retaliate in order to make things right. Instead, we should live at peace. I like how Paul put it, to leave room for God. By, I think of this by taking a step back. We're taking ourselves out of control. And when we take ourselves out of control, we allow God to step up and we allow God to be in control. See, God is in control. He's sovereign. And by letting ourselves take a step back, we let him come in and be in control that we don't have to retaliate. So maybe your enemy is that neighbor who mows their lawn at 7 a.m. Maybe instead of being angry with them, you just go out, have a conversation with them. Get to know them. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe instead of resenting your boss and talking bad about him to your coworkers or to your family, you have a conversation with your boss and just get to know him. Take him out for lunch, have a conversation. It's God's job to repay and avenge evil, not our own. And it's so easy to be vengeful and hateful to our enemies and those who look different than us. But Jesus is calling us to live a life that is different and set apart by love. So here's the question. If your family member asks you to borrow $300, do you let them? Or if your coworker asks to borrow your car, do you let them? You see, these things are crazy. But crazy is what's gonna change the world. Jesus goes on in verse 43 to say, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I wonder if the people right here are confused. Not about the hate your enemy part, because I'm sure they all had an enemy in their mind, but about this neighbor part. Who do I have to love? Are they turning to the person to their uh, right or to their left, saying, do I have to love you? Are you my or neighbor? Do... Is the person that lives next door in the house next to me, is that my neighbor? Is it someone along the same street? That's, that must be my neighbor. Is it the community that I live in? Is that my neighbor? Who is my neighbor that I have to love? Jesus here, this statement, you have heard it said, is referencing back to Leviticus 19.18, where Moses is sharing about different types of holiness. There's ritual holiness and social and ethical holiness and holiness of the heart and what it means to grow in holiness in general. In verse 18, he says, do, or he speaks from God saying, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I don't know you, about you, but I find that super interesting is that this whole verse talks about love. There's nothing about hating your enemy. So where are people hearing it said, hate your enemy? Most commonly, it wasn't 
or it wasn't common to see such dramatic leaps to hate your enemy in Jewish teachings. So some people believe that it was added later by Christian writers to make a mockery of Jewish teaching, which I don't think that's quite right. There's another idea, though, that Jesus is calling out a certain group of people. Jesus got a lot of critique from the Jews at that time. There were the Zealots and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But there's a less commonly known sect of Jews called the Essenes. And the Essenes believed that the Jewish world was going to crap. They believed everything was gonna fall apart. People weren't worshiping God correctly. They weren't doing sacrifices correctly. They weren't following what was written in the law. So they said, peace out, we're gonna go live in the wilderness. You guys, the world's gonna fall apart and we're gonna be over there watching. And in their communities, they had what was called uh, the manual of discipline. And in the manual of discipline, they would call themselves the son of light and everyone else the son of darkness. And in this manual of discipline, it said to love the sons of light, each according to his own lot. And in the counsel of God to hate all the sons and daughters, each according to his guilt and the vengeance of God. See, the Essenes had a whole doctrine dedicated to hating your neighbor, to those that aren't like you. And when other people start hearing this, they see, well, the Essenes said they can hate their neighbor, so I'm gonna hate my neighbor. And that lie got spread around so everyone can hate whoever is not like them. But Jesus flips that all upside down. In verse 44, Jesus goes on, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Let's break this down. Jesus is telling his disciples and those listening, you need to love everybody. Now, this isn't the same type of love that we have for tacos. This word here for love is agapeo. And in Greek, that's the action word of the love agape. And this is the same type of love that God has for Jesus and that God has for us. It's the same love that we have for God and the same love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But Jesus is saying you should have the same type of love for your enemies. And not only do we have to love them, but we have to pray for those that persecute us. Most of us nowadays don't face forms of persecution. For us, it might be asking the question of why do we have to love the person that cut us off in traffic? Why do we have to pay, pray for that barista that got our coffee order wrong? Or why do I have to love that neighbor that's mowing their lawn at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning? I think the answer's simple. Not only is it the same type of love that God has for us, but it's a love that's full of grace and compassion for other people. Jesus uses two examples after saying that we have to love our enemies to illustrate how gracious 
God is. The first one, Jesus mentions how the sun rises and the rain falls, both on those who are righteous and those who are not. Next time, it's that bright, sunny Saturday morning. Your neighbor's mowing that lawn. You know, that little shared strip between your house. It's echoing between the houses. You're just so frustrated. Realize how the sun is on both of you in that moment. God's grace is everywhere. And right now, it reaches out to all people. See, someday God is going to come and he's going to judge the righteous and the unrighteous for the good and the evil that they have done. But right now, that grace extends to all people. And second, Jesus shares how God's love is different and goes beyond the normal type of love that humans have for one another. He points out uh, that if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? And then says, even the tax collectors, the people who were viewed as the worst of their time, because they would take the money for the government, and then they'd take a little bit of extra for them. They would be viewed as crooked, thieves, just terrible people. Everyone hated them. And Jesus says, they love those that love them. I find it so easy to love my wife. Find it easy to love my parents or my brother because they love me back. But what's not as easy is loving that person that cut me off in traffic or that barista that got my coffee order wrong or that neighbor that's mowing their lawn at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. God's love goes beyond just those that love him back. It extends to all people, no matter how they act towards him. And Jesus is calling us to have that same type of love. There's numerous accounts that show Jesus acting differently to those that don't look like him. And one of those can be found in Luke chapter five, where Jesus asked a guy named Levi, a tax collector, to have a meal with him. And in verse 29, it says, then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had begun or who belonged to their sect, complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call, or not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. We talked earlier on how the tax collectors were viewed as the worst people of that time. But Jesus went out and had a meal with him, something no one else would have done. I think when Jesus was confronted about it, he said the perfect response. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. See, we can't live like the Essenes did. We can't look at the world around us and say, well, that's going bad. Peace out, we're going over here. We're gonna love our community of people. Instead, we need to go what's contrary to the popular Christian culture where we can't go into the bars and love those people. We can't love the people who are in financial ruin. We can't love those that are politically or racially or religiously different than us. Instead, we need to love all people with that same type of love that Christ is calling us to have. Jesus went out and showed love and was an example of this. And it was crazy but crazy is what will change the world. In the next verse, verse 48, 
Jesus finishes off these sections of the I've heard it said, the statements that go back to Matthew 5, 21. And he closes by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. I don't know about you, but I don't know how I'm supposed to live a perfect life. And quite frankly, sometimes I feel like I fall into the trap that I have to live a perfect life in order to be close to God. I have to get everything right in order to be close to God. But that's not what this verse is saying here. Over the past 28 verses, we've seen Jesus calling his disciples and the people listening to live a life that's set apart from the rest of the world. And as followers of Christ, we must let our words look differently. We must let our desires look differently. The way we handle our anger must look different, and the way we love others must be different. You see, the word perfect here doesn't actually mean perfect in the flawless, uh, we can't make mistakes sense of the word. The word perfect here in Greek translates to the word teleos, and the word teleos means to be brought to completion, or to be mature, or to be finished. So the statement to be perfect isn't to live without error. It's not that we have to pull ourselves together. It's a challenge. It's to shape our lives so we look more and more like God each and every day. I wonder what would happen if we let our lives be images of Christ. How would it change what our homes look like? How would it change what our workplace looked like? How would it change how our community around us looked like? Instead of resenting your boss, what if you took him out to lunch, had a conversation with him, got to know him, and not confront him on all your issues with him at that time, but got to know him and casually bring him up after that point? What if instead of hating that neighbor who's mowing their lawn at 7 a.m. and that shared bit playing music over the mowing, what if we chose to take them out a glass of water and got to know them and have a conversation with them? What if instead of yelling at the barista that got our coffee order wrong, we chose to just handle that with respect and care and love for the other person? What would be different? You see, loving people differently it's not at always an easy task. And it might seem crazy, but crazy is what will change the world. Will you pray with me? God, I wanna thank you for coming, being an example of love for us. I wanna thank you for sending your son to be this example, that someone who would go and eat with the tax collectors and eat with the sinners a way we can be different to show care for other people, even when it's not easy. We realize that it's something crazy. It's not easy to show love for those that offend us, that hurt us. It's not easy to show love for those that look different than us. We realize it is easy to show love for those that look like us and act like us. But let our lives, let the love that we have for other people, those that look like us, pour into those that don't look like us. Show us this love and be an example of this love in our lives. In your name we pray.
Amen.